You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. And welcome to another episode of the RN Mentor Podcast. I have the great pleasure of having uh, Dr. Pamela Wall with me today. Uh, she is a psychiatric nurse practitioner who graduated from the University of Pennsylvania with a Master's of Science in Nursing, Rush University with a Postmaster's Certificate as a Psychiatric Nurse Practitioner, and received her PhD from the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Wall is a 20-year veteran of the United States Navy Nurse Corps, where she served in various nursing roles to include inpatient and outpatient units and with multiple deployments. She was the first nurse to be appointed as a division psychiatrist at 2nd Marine Division and worked as an advisor for mental health to the commanding general of the 2nd Marine Division, the chief nursing officer, and the surgeon general of the Navy. Most recently, she was the chief of in-service and an international health coordinator at the United States Peace Corps. Answering the call of the overwhelming need for mental health services, Dr. Wall has gone back to her roots and is working in a private uh, neuropsychiatric practice in Virginia. Uh, She is a fellow of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. Her research and publications uh, focus on PTSD, TBI, sleep simulation, and implicit bias in academic settings. Her clinical expertise is in treating adults with anxiety, PTSD, sexual assault, and depression. Dr. Wall uh, is a Jonas Scholar and also serves as a board member of the Your Next Stage organization, whose mission is to support women transitioning from military service. Welcome to the show, Dr. Wall. Hi, Ollie. Thanks for having me. How are you tonight? I am I am good with all your credentials. I have I need issue I have I've had depression, anxiety, all that stuff going being stuck at home. Uh, uh, this may end up being a therapy session for me. Uh, so now I got two beers, they're both yours. <laughs> Uh, so thank you again for being here. Uh, 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 very impressive bio. Uh, your full bio, actually, there's more to it. Your full bio is uh, is on my website uh, for everybody to uh, take a look at. Um, but uh, that's you've accomplished a lot, and you have so much ahead of you. So thank you for everything you've done. That's very impressive. Uh, and you, you're, 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 you have experience in two areas where I'm very fond of. You're both. We're, we were both in the Navy. And we both served on the Marine side of the house. So I was a corpsman, uh, obviously, not at 2nd Marine Division, at 1st Marine Division and 3rd Marine Division. Uh, so, uh, but that's, that's, that's very impressive. Um, let's start with uh, how you got into the world of nursing and uh, what, what, what made you become, become a nurse and how did you get involved with it? And we'll take it from there. So I, I kind of fell into it. Um, not on my bio is a, a degree in history, 
Um, that was my first degree. I'm a, a second degree uh, nursing student. So I graduated from um, Northeast Missouri State. It's, um, oh, it's Truman State, uh, Northeast Missouri, Truman State now. And uh, I was looking for something to do. So I went home to Chicago and my aunt, who's a nurse, there's the connection right there, said, don't you dare become a nurse. I will kill you if you become a nurse. And so she got me a job in an emergency room as an admissions clerk. Uh, it was an ER on the west side of Chicago. And the nurses just started working on me. They wore me down and uh, showed me the love of medicine and nursing. Um, and it was, um, I've been kind of that trauma lens since that time. And so I, I worked full time in the emergency room. I started as an admissions clerk. Then I became a unit clerk back in the emergency room. And then I became a uh, emergency room technician, all while working uh, my way through nursing school. And uh, then I graduated nursing school, and I needed a place to go. So that's how I got recruited into the United States Navy, and it's been quite the journey ever since. So did you, so did you go straight from the school into into the Navy then? I did. Yeah, I worked for a few months as a nurse in the emergency room, waiting to get commissioned into the Navy. Um, but I jumped right as soon as I got my license. I started working for a few uh, months in the emergency department as a nurse. The role didn't change a lot between the technician and the nurse. The nurses pretty much taught me everything I needed to know um, in that role. And so I was pretty well suited to jump into that role as a nurse. And then I um, showed up at my new duty station in San Diego. I said, wow, I just, I just really want to be an emergency room nurse. This is awesome. And my senior nurse said, yeah, Ensign Herbig, I really don't care what you want. You're going to the psych unit. <laughs> I said, oh, there's a tear forming, but I'll go. Thank you, ma'am. May I have another? <laughs> and so I think my career has been a, a, a couple of years of just kind of falling into the right place. And that's how I look at it. So she was a visionary. She saw you as a psych yes. nurse, not as an emergency <laughs> trauma person you were trying to be. Yeah. Uh, very cool. Uh, we have another thing in common. Actually, after I left the Navy, uh, that's the first thing I did. I came and I got a, I got a job at a hospital as a clerk. Because, um, you know, everything you do in the Navy as a corpsman doesn't translate well into the civilian no. world. I was like, I was doing everything. Yes, uh, and yeah. then over here they're like, "Yeah, you can't do any of that." I'm like, "Oh, okay, thanks." Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so they're very cool. Um, so you're ex- so you're at the Naval Medical Center, San Diego. Yes, that Pink, Pink Palace, Balboa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, I served there too. I served on. I think it was. This is back in, but this is this maybe before before your time. Uh, this was in ninety uh, ninety two. I was I was at Balboa. I just uh, missed you. Uh, yeah, so I was 96. there and I. I was I was uh, I was at the I was on the urology and medicine floor, but most of our patients in '92 were HIV patients. Mm-hmm. That's the primary thing that we saw and who we had. Uh, uh, it, it was interesting. It was it was interesting uh, serving there. Uh, and then I went back again. Um, in uh, when did I go back? Um, a few years later, I, you know, I was there. Like actually, we may have crossed paths because I went back there. I want to say like '96. Maybe not. Maybe ninety eight, ninety nine, something I just like that. You. Yeah, uh, I yeah. went back there again for another short rotation. So, 
uh, but I worked with the medical mobilization readiness team. Mm, yes. so we deployed you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Um, so, uh, you, so how is Navy life? Cause you've had, you had a full career uh, in the, in the military. Uh, so uh, thought, a lot of the guests I've had on the show have, uh, have served in the, uh, in the military, um, Dr. Ricciardi, uh, also who had on on the show, uh, he was um, um, he had a full career in the military. How was how was your experience uh, in the Navy Nurse Corps? That's a big question. So I started off in the Navy uh, in '96, and we were in a world without war. And then about five years later, the entire trajectory of my my career in the military changed um, with 9/11. And I, I remember sitting there that day at the hospital thinking, this is changing everything. And less than four months later, I was on my first deployment. So um, good and bad. I mean, the, the Navy made me who I am today, gave me the clinical experiences that I have today, gave me the leadership experiences, um, provided me with a, a wonderful depth and breadth of, of clinical acumen and leadership and education. Um, but it was also very difficult in that I saw a lot of things that, you know, I'm just never going to get out of my head. Um, but again, those experiences have good and bad as well. So I think we've learned a lot from um, the, the advances in science. Uh, we know a lot more about trauma and brain injury and, and polytrauma. Our system of polytrauma has been advanced significantly. Um, just sitting there listening to the scholars, Jonas scholars, and all the academics from Uniformed Services University and the things that uh, that they're learning about. Um, uh, I'm thinking of Billy Danchenko, and he's probably going to kill me for mentioning him, but the things that they're learning about depleted uranium and, and the things that are left in, in the human body, and that, you know, what you would assume is happening is really not. So it's just uh, you know, there's a lot of unfortunate things that happen in, in war, but a lot of wonderful opportunities that we can make from these unfortunate circumstances. And so all in all, good and bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, now, um, well, yeah, I mean, it, looking looking back at, you know, my, my, you know I'm going to uh, do a little com- compare and contrast type of a thing uh, uh, with my own service. It, like we did see, we did see uh, a lot of things that, uh, you know, uh, but, you know, there's a, there's a whole, so if it, it has, for me, it has felt very different. Uh, just the camaraderie that you have in the military and the, is the family unit that I always kind of, uh, I, you know, over the years I've, I've come to convince myself part of that is brainwashing, <laughs> you know, you're, you're in this bubble and you leave, you live it day in and day out. And it's like, this is my world. And, but, 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 you know, there's something, but it's, but it was definitely something, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, but uh, that I definitely miss. Uh, but yeah, you do learn a lot. Like when I left the military and I came back um, uh, into the civilian world, I went and started doing, working on at hospitals. Uh, I noticed the stuff that was coming into hospitals and like, oh, look at this. I'm like, I was using that stuff like 10, 15 <laughs> years ago. Why do we look at this cool new thing that's been around? And they're like, no, it just came out. I'm like, no, it hasn't. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it was one of those. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so, I mean, having that experience of having um, having had the opportunity to work with things mm-hmm. way ahead of time and Naval Medical Center, San Diego had the, had the robots, uh, you know, that delivered delivered all the supplies and everything and people are like a few years ago look we have robots that deliver i'm like i i saw this stuff back in 92 when i was at the and it was already old back then so uh so yeah uh so it really cool uh to have that experience of um you know kind of have being at the front of 
at the forefront of medicine, I want to say, uh, mm-hmm. and and healthcare, really, not just medicine, but just healthcare. And having that opportunity was great. Um, now you've you've uh, you you've obviously had a full career in the Navy, and um, uh, you had an opportunity to serve with the Marine side of the house. And for people who don't know, the Marines get all their healthcare professionals from the Navy. Uh, so whether it's corpsmen, nurses, doctors, they all, we cross train for a little bit and then we go and we serve with the other side. Um, so you were, you worked with, uh, with second Marine division and, uh, looking at the bio, not too shabby. You were, you had the ear of quite a few people. Um, how did that, uh, process, uh, obviously you were already, uh, an established, uh, psych NP. So, um, how did that process, uh, work out and how was that experience for you? Yeah, so I, I call that one of my formative career, uh, career moves. Um, it was actually a, a significant demotion. Um, I was working as a director of the Psych MP program at Uniformed Services University, and they had just opened up uh, the division billets to women. And I, I, had, I had heard whisperings of this in my, the back of my ear, but I wasn't paying too much attention to it. And I get a call one night from the detailer, and he said, you know, Pam, I have an opportunity for you. And I thought, oh, God, I need to hold uh, on to something because the last time I had an opportunity, I was in the desert for six months. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you should have. So, oh, no. Um, so he said they just opened up division billets and you were asked for by name to fill this billet down there. And I was in the middle of my PhD program at the University of Pennsylvania. I was, I was doing it part time. And so I said, well, I need to have a conversation with my professors at Penn and and see if they'd be willing to allow me to finish out my dissertation part time. And so I couched it as I will be one of the first women serving in an all male unit. And this is quite an opportunity. And, you know, how could they say no? (laughs) Right. Right. So um, I took the billet. I went down there and there was two female providers. It was myself and uh, then Shannon Knapp. She was with Second Tanks. And I think we had one female chief. And maybe 70 women in total of how many Marines are in a division? Oh, thousands and thousands. I don't know. Thousands. Yeah. So I remember walking around in my uniform and it doesn't occur to these Marines that you're a woman. And so they never look above the collar, and that's not in a suggestive sexual sort of way. They just look at the, the collar devices to see what your rank is, right? and then they just know to salute it. And I don't think I was ever called ma'am one time because they looked at the collar device. They would pop a salute and call me sir. And as they looked up to see my face, it was then that they realized that I was a woman. And so I was quite the oddity and even more so in that I was a senior, I was a mid-grade, a field grade officer when I went down there, I was Lieutenant Commander, and then I made Commander. Uh, They didn't know what to think about me. And it was even funnier, my husband's experience. Now, my husband is a former Special Forces Marine enlisted guy, and he was a civilian when I married him. I need to make sure everyone has that. Uh, I was going to say, do we need to unpack (laughs) that? And. Well, listeners that don't know, uh, <laughs> officers and enlisted don't co-mingle. No. Uh, yeah. And so he was super <laughs> excited because this was his old stomping ground, stomping ground. And so he was thrilled to be going back to Second Marine Division as a an, an officer's husband. <laughs> and, um, they 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 hadn't yet uh, figured out how to identify the female spouses, and so he would get 
emails from the general's wife, uh, dear ladies. Um, and so he yep. would walk around his work and, and I can say this now, he worked for special forces at, at Fort Bragg and he would walk around with his dear lady email and he just thought that was the best thing. And then they had something called Jane Wayne day there, um, down second Marine division. And they're probably just cringing because I'm talking about this, but they had <laughs> Jane Wayne day at second Marine division where all the wives would come and play on the toys that the Marines had. So they would go out yep. and play on the tanks and shoot guns <clears throat> And so um, I remember the fro or the family readiness officer came to me and she said, um, yeah, Commander Wall, um, you know, you're supposed to be wearing, we call it battle rattle, um, Kevlar and flak for going out on these, this equipment. And she says, I don't think that your husband's going to be able to fit into your battle rattle. And I said, That's, that is accurate. But he has, he has his own, so don't worry about him. <laughs> so he shows up, and he's the only dude wearing this pink T-shirt, this pink and green T-shirt for Jane Wayne Day. Because which that's, what, that's what they gave them, right? Yes, and he still has that T-shirt today. And so he, awesome. he, he was showing the wives in the simulated um, <laughs> scenario how to shoot gangsta style um, the guns. Yeah. And so following Monday, my patient walks in and he said, yeah, my wife had a really good time at Jane Wayne Day. And some dude was there. Some officer's husband was there <laughs> showing her how to shoot gangsta style. And I thought, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was it was quite the um, cultural. Um, I'm trying to find a good, polite word for it. Marines definitely have their own way of seeing the world, especially this, this group of Marines, they've been deployed multiple times. Um, they were a little rough around the edges at that time. And so they had their own language style. They had their own communication style. And so uh, being a woman and trying to fit into that culture was definitely an experience, I guess. Yeah, I can, I can, I can yeah. imagine. Uh, yeah. I, I remember. Yeah. So um, for our listeners that don't know, so uh, uh the division side of the Marines uh, was primarily male, all male. Yes. Uh, those were like the combatant units. Those are the mm-hmm. ones that are on the front lines. That's why we didn't have uh, females um, in the in those in those units. Uh, and uh, they have the um, uh, fleet service support group, which had which was mixed units, and the Marine Air Wing that were mixed units, but not division until uh, I think it was like mid nineties or something like that, maybe I late nineties. No, actually later. They, was it, it later? They, uh, I went down there in 2014, 2012, 2012. Oh, okay. they integrated, yeah. Yeah, because um, I, I remember we had one corpsman. Well, not a corpsman. Uh, well, actually, yeah, we had we had one corpsman that was with 3rd uh, Marine Division, and this is uh, in the mid-'90s. Um, mm-hmm. And then we had a, a chaplain's assistant, and I forget what they're called now. Are they called chaplain? Uh, anyway, and she, we had a female, and that was again mid '90s. So, um, so yeah, but they didn't do a full integration until mm-hmm. till I remember later. Um, um, so yeah, that 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 is definitely because how I'm just trying to think of having having females in, in those division units and how the behaviors must have seemed to you because it is very uh, unique. We'll just put it that way. Uh, yes. <laughs> There's a lot of words that I can't use on the podcast. They yeah. use with regularity. And I had to explain to them that that's a, a, a body part and not a term that you use in therapy. 
Yeah. Um, so please don't use that here. <laughs> but uh, I work. You just have to kind of let it roll off of you if you're. Um, if you take offense lightly, that's not the place for you, I guess. Um, but yeah. I, I think the culture has shifted a lot since then. Uh, I think that they, I had a wonderful Sergeant Major, a wonderful General, Sergeant Major Zikafus, he just retired. There's a shout out to my friend Z. Uh, so I had a great leadership uh, cadre that was very accepting of women at that time. Right, right. Uh, and there's definitely, you know, I think, I think, uh, um, uh, there has been a lot of uh, issues with 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 integrating women with all male units, and uh, I think the the all the all the service branches have a lot of work to do uh, in that arena. Uh, and I think part of it comes comes from um, um, you know um, not not necessarily recruitment, but you know uh, introduction from the point where they come into the military. Uh, of how that integration happens, so I think there's a there's definitely a, uh, a lot of work to be done. Um, and looking at um, uh, speaking of that uh, of language, I had to like six months before I thought I was getting out of the military, I had to start cleaning up my language. I'm like, there's no way I'm, anybody's even going to talk to me if I don't clean up my language before I go into the civilian world. And and I started like you know even now when i have and when i'm it is so tempting right now to use language just because i know you were in the military uh but but even with my friends as soon as i'm with them that were in the military with me like the language completely shifts into this um colorful language that uh, <laughs> that i would not dare <laughs> use anywhere else and it's just you know it's just you use all kinds of uh words that you normally would not so uh so yes uh Language is definitely uh, it. Ha- it does have its own language, and that's one of the things. Actually, I did a, a, a like a, a module to to educate uh, faculty on um, uh, on veteran students uh, and how they behave, and sometimes the language that they may use. I said, "This is this is cultural. I mean, it really is a military culture." Um, so um, please don't take it as you know. Uh, like they're trying to be offensive or they're trying to be um, this is, this is cultural. It's something that they have to learn or unlearn. Uh, I have to say uh, So, um, so definitely. So, yeah. Um, uh, that's, a, so, that's a good segue. So there's it. I think it's even more difficult for women, especially women who serve in some of those combatant units. They expect you to behave a certain way. And I think a lot of, and this, I'm just speaking from my experience in my own personal lens you wear a uniform that's very androgynous in nature right. and your hair is pulled back and you're not encouraged to be very feminine in appearance. And then you are encouraged to be very assertive, sometimes even aggressive. Right. And so when you transition from the military to the civilian community, there's no place for that. And so I think, in my experience, and again, I'm just speaking from my lens and my own personal experience, a woman who is assertive in the military is a good thing, but that same woman who is assertive is perceived entirely different in the civilian community, and it's a negative perception. Right. And learning how to navigate some of those really negative perceptions about assertive women in the civilian community is a difficult transition, which is kind of my impetus for getting involved with the other board. You know, your next stage is women transitioning from the military. I wish somebody would come and told me and said, 
this is how women are perceived and this is how you should navigate. And I think the only other area where I think women still struggle that with that is maybe women executives and maybe women politicians, because there's really a fine line between being assertive and being feminine and how do you balance that and still maintain respectability and likability? Because if, if they perceive you as too assertive, you can become aggressive, which is never a bad thing for a man. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll, we'll talk about that. <laughs> going from an all, uh, you know, primarily all male units and going back into the civilian community, I found my way into HR more than once. Uh, or use so like uh, you are being aggressive. I'm like, how was I aggressive? This yeah, was. Yeah. I was like, this is not. So it was, it was one of one of the main reasons I agreed to do that, uh, like a module for the faculty. I'm like, this is not aggressive behavior. This is mm-hmm. cultural. The military is not. It's it's like having somebody come from another country and expressing them the way they express themselves in that country. This is no different. This is completely mm-hmm. cultural. And uh, so, yeah, like I said, I found myself uh, in the in HR more than once for uh, having, <laughs> having aggressive behavior towards colleagues in meetings or things like that. And and one of the things like, oh, you wear, you know, your emotions show. I'm like, oh, God forbid my emotions show when we're having a discussion. So. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I still I still struggle. I still struggle with that uh, because, you know, like most of us like grew up like our primarily our adult behaviors developed when we were in the military and to try to unlearn that. And I don't think it's necessarily, we should have to unlearn it because it is our culture. Mm -hmm. Um, But because the civilian community is so unaware, Mm -hmm. uh, it feels like that sometimes anyway, that they're so unaware of, of military, uh, military culture and military behavior that we have to, re kind of erase our military identity and re kind of sort of become like these reborn against civilians that clashes a lot of times with who who my true self, you know, sometimes is. And I have to definitely put it in check sometimes Um, and like shut my mouth, just not participate uh, because I'm afraid how it's going to be perceived. I mean, that's definitely, see, I told you this is going to turn into a therapy. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and, and nobody else has experienced. No other cultures have experienced with that in the United States. Here, never happened with anybody else. Yeah, right. Uh, so yeah, but but you know, but but it's it's one of those. Yeah. So I definitely, you know, uh, I feel for uh, you know that's why you you know you working yeah. with that with that organization. I think is so important. Um, yeah, because nobody nobody said like the first person that hired me. I worked as at a, as at a sporting goods store. Like my first job out, like weeks out of the military. Was that a sport? And I got the job from a from a retired uh, like army colonel guy that was the manager for this place. So, so like I, him and I like like you know um, got along because he knew he knew me, I knew him, and we were we were able to connect. Uh, but you know some of those same behaviors once I went into nursing was very mm-hmm. much kind of frowned upon. So. Uh, so yeah, so yeah, so I, I agree. I mean, I can I can imagine imagine it being that much, just because the civilian community kind of puts women in this one box of how you should behave and how you should dress and how you should look and all this stuff. And uh, that transition uh, could is that much more difficult. I didn't have to, you know, uh, do a yeah. So anyway, I agree. Yeah, I agree with yeah. you. It's all about intonation and smiling. And- oh God. 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm cringing. I'm cringy as you're saying this. Uh, but yeah, but yeah, but it is. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it's the behavior. Uh, I have, I have even like I, a lot of times I feel, I feel myself kind of getting pulled back. Uh, mm-hmm. Like I pull myself back. I'm like, don't get involved in this conversation. It's not going to turn out the way you think it's going to turn out by, by having an opinion. Uh, yeah. So I, 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 but you know, it's not a, it's not a good thing. I think um, may, maybe someday I'll learn. Um, so you, so let's uh, so uh, again, uh, an incredible career that you had um, uh, in the Navy and thank you for your service. Uh, thank you for yours. Thank you. Um, but you decided uh, to come out and, and, work with the Peace Corps, which, yeah. which actually I have, I have, a, I have an engineer friend, a uh, PhD type. Um, uh, uh, he, he's, he's got a brain on him. That's friggin' amazing. Um, but uh, yeah, he worked with the Peace Corps for a while uh, in like remote villages and things like that. Uh, but what was your role? What, what was your role in the Peace Corps? Yeah. So uh, there is a, a large medical contingency at the headquarters here in Washington, D.C., um, Peace Corps deploys volunteers, well, they used to until COVID, um, to yeah. about 61 countries. There's around six to 7,000 volunteers out in the field um, any any given time. And their health care is taken care of by the Peace Corps medical officers in their host countries. And so these are usually host country nationals. Um, historically speaking, the public health service used to manage the medical care, even in the, the host countries but they ended up transitioning that to the host country providers. And so these volunteers actually live with host families um, out in the community. And then whatever medical care they get, they have to either do it via phone or through telemedicine or go into the Capitol or wherever it is that the Peace Corps medical officer is serving. Um, So let's say this is South Africa. They, They would go into the Capitol and get their medical care there by their Peace Corps medical officer. And so the Peace Corps medical officers are uh, generalists. And so if they require any specialty care, uh, they would either consult what's called a regional medical officer. And there's uh, three hubs that's South Africa, Morocco, and Thailand. So there's RMOs there, um, or they would consult back with headquarters. And so we have uh, a number of physicians and nurse practitioners that actually work at headquarters. And very few people know about this contingent of uh, consultants at headquarters. And so I, I worked initially as a psychiatric nurse practitioner, and I continued to be the only psychiatric nurse practitioner for the entire Peace Corps. So I was the only uh, medical psychiatry uh, prescriber for all of Peace Corps. Wow. A little on the scary side, but um, yes. And so... Um, I also became what's called the field support manager. So I managed all of the nurse practitioners uh, who also were served as consultants. So the NPs would kind of divide up the globe. Each each nurse practitioner had a, an area that they were responsible for, and they communicated daily with all their Peace Corps medical officers and the RMOs, and they would consult on cases. And then when the care could not be delivered either in country through consultation or by the PCMOs, then we would medevac them either through an air ambulance or on a commercial airplane. And then we would manage their cases here in the United States with the goal of getting them back to service or um, 
we had only 45 days of the Peace Corps to do this, or we would um, uh, kind of retire them until they would get better and then bring them back into service. And so um, if they decided that the patient um, needed any psychiatric um, care, then I would provide that for them. Now we had psychologists that managed their care, but anything medical related would come to me. So it was a, I never knew what was coming across my plate every day and we had some pretty unusual cases. So it was, it was really, really interesting when you think about the provision of psychiatry, psychiatric nursing in a very austere environment. I thought military was austere. This is, this, this is even more austere. So you have to think about uh, where is the volunteer? Are they close to their PCMO? Most often they're within hours of their PCMO on a dirt road and the ambulance may not have a motor in it. Um, and how do you get that volunteer from here to there? And how do you get medications from here to there? Uh, something simple as getting a medication to them. And here's an example. Uh, we have a, a medication called Effexor. And let's say the patient is on a, a heroic dose of Effexor, which is 225 milligrams. This is a medication that they can't run out of because if they do, they'll have a very serious discontinuation syndrome. And so I had a situation where the volunteer actually was getting ready to run out of the medication and the medical logistics could not get that medication to that volunteer in time. What do you do? So, in my we head, had, I'm saying drones, drones, <laughs> let's use drones. <laughs> so we don't have drones. And so we actually had to medevac that volunteer to a location where we could actually get them the effector. So, you know, you just have to really think outside of the box and work with these, the, the PCMOs. And sometimes you have to work with state department. Does state department have it? Does the, um, does the embassy have it? So you really have to think, scratch your head and say, uh, where am I going to find this or how am I going to get this? And so it was quite the learning experience. It was, it was a wonderful experience. How long did you do that for? Are you still I doing did, You're not doing that. No, no, I, I, yeah. So we did, we did it for a year and a half. And then back in April, uh, we had to make a, a pretty serious decision on the safety of the volunteers. And so we launched their evacuation, all 6,000 of them wow. uh, in a week. And that was a pretty heroic feat between the, the logistics officers here, there, and, and then the entire medical team getting them, you know, from their country's home, you know, safely, you know, in the middle of a pandemic and getting them connected to care out in town. So even though we got them home in a week, we still had to do contact tracing on them. And that was Dr. Kyle Peterson in his epi unit. He's now at Uniform Services University. And, uh, just the entire team of the IHCs and the pre-service nurses. And we just all worked together to get them, you know, plugged in and, and taken care of. So very Herculean feat and uh, just, just happy to be a part of that, that wonderful team there at, at Office yeah. of Health Services. Yeah. That, that's, that, that, that does sound uh, like a, um, yeah. Like I said, I, I, when I, when I was at San Diego, we did these mobilization, mobilization readiness team stuff. And, um, and it was definitely uh, a feat to get even a couple of hundred people <laughs> moving, moving around, let alone thousands. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so that's amazing. Um, now, as you as you were talking, my head is going around scope of practice, right? Um, 
can we talk about scope of practice? Because it sounds like, and and I, we didn't, and I know the military just scope of practice in the military is different, uh, and you are the only uh, uh, psych MP with with a P score. So, uh, how's the scope of practice compared to um, what the like the civilian side? Uh, kind of does because I know the VA did full scope of practice. The military scope of practice is anyway. Please, <laughs> oh, this is this is the bane of my existence. So, <laughs> as a nurse practitioner, its scope of practice is just a moving target. You have to figure out what your scope of practice is every place you land because it's always different. And in, in the military, we had full authority. We, we, I, the only time I was supervised in the military was during my residency. And then I land out of the military and I'm in North Carolina. I was, I was, well, I was working in North Carolina in the military, full practice at Camp Lejeune and at Cherry Point. And then I walk outside of the gate and in North Carolina, you require physician supervision, (laughs) which rubs the wrong way. Uh, And it's politics. It's, it's simply politics. And there's just a lot involved in that to unpack here today. Uh, And I worked in private practice in North Carolina when I was at Duke and also at the VA. So in private practice in North Carolina, my supervision consisted of a piece of paper that I signed with my supervising physician and call me if you have a problem. In the VA, it was not full practice at the VA in North Carolina. They chose not to engage. Oh, so not every VA does full practice. And that's so when people say the VA did full practice, um, they don't. And I so, yeah, no. Because so I know don't. they, I mean, from a federal federal perspective, they okayed for nurse practitioners. But I didn't know they, they had the option of opting out. Uh, they I was like what they did. They had the option of opting out. And so some of them chose to opt out of that. And wow. the, the Durham VA chose to opt out of that or the visit, whatever the, the larger organization over. And so they chose to opt out of that. So in Durham, the, I had a position supervisor there. And so that was a monthly meeting with the psychiatrist. And then in the Peace Corps, nurse practitioners, for some reason, even though it was federal, they still were under the supervision of a, a physician but my license was in North Carolina. So I had to have a separate physician supervisor. um, And she, I had to find somebody because I wasn't really working in North Carolina. So I ended up calling an old friend of mine who I worked with at Cherry Point. She ended up being my nursing, my physician supervisor. She was very gracious about it, but it was, (laughs) you know, I, I wore a bottle of wine. Now I have a, I'm in Virginia and I have a physician supervisor and we have to meet weekly. Oh wow! So it's it's different every place you go. There's absolutely no consistency now in Virginia. If you provide documentation of all your hours, then you can not have a supervisor. But the onus of finding somebody to sign off on all your clinical hours is on you. But all my clinical hours were in the military, so I have no way of getting that information to the state of Virginia. Right. Did I answer your question? Yeah. Uh, uh, well, it's, it's sort of what I expected. Is it's 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 different wherever it seems like yeah. wherever you go, and it's, yeah. it's uh, and a lot of it is is it, well, not a lot of it. It is political. There's absolutely no reason mm-hmm. uh, nurse practitioners uh, 
you know, especially nurse practitioners with experience should not be able to have full scope of practice. And the scope of practice is not, uh, you know, I don't, I, anyway, I don't understand it. This, it's not the same scope of practice as a physician. It's a different scope of practice. This is a, so the fact that they say, oh, they're trying to do whatever. I, I don't, I don't, I don't buy that argument. It's a big sigh. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, smile, I, smile and wave. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm 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 glad California <laughs> California just took the first step in the right direction. Yeah. California's, you know, so um, it's not full authority scoop scope of practice, but or as full independent scope of practice, but it's definitely in the right uh, direction. Yeah, I, um, when I was uh, working with the North Carolina Nurses Association, and we were lobbying in uh, Durham. I remember sitting in a particular senator's office and, you know, I was using the military saying, hey, I was a full scope authority nurse practitioner in the military and I just walk outside the gate and I can't do that. And she just looked at me and she said, oh, the physicians pay me more, so that's how I'm going to vote. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, thank you for your honesty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, uh, the evidence doesn't support the argument. So uh, it, it's it's. Uh, it's a shame. It's a shame that we don't have a yeah. just a national standard uh, with full authority. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, but hopefully, hopefully, I don't want to. I want to say we'll win that argument someday. I, I hope <laughs> the, the 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 powers that resist that change hopefully will uh, will um, will drink the Kool Aid at some point and um, move forward with us, yeah. alongside us. Not yes, yes. Holding hand in hand, yes. Holding hand in hand. <laughs> uh, so uh, I want to spend a little, little bit of time uh, talking about your uh, uh, your practice and your research because uh, I know you um, uh, you you know you focus on PTSD, TBI, things like that. And I'm and I'm, I'm going to assume that that kind of transferred over from your military days of having to um, work with that community. Uh, and I know it's such a huge thing with, with the veteran community and the military. Um, just looking at, you know, at my own research, a lot of times, um, not a lot of times, like every, and I specifically, my research with bad paper veterans, less than honorable discharges, like all mm-hmm. of them uh, have, um, have, uh, have had mental health issues that should have been addressed or weren't addressed or, the transition piece, and that's another piece that I, I think we can talk a little bit about is um, how does the, those things kind of coincide between um, PTSD, TBI, things like that, and uh, transition from the military and how it affects um, the veteran community um, and maybe the population that you're you're specifically researching? Yeah, so uh, my dissertation was focused on, you know, the impact of pre-existing sleep disorders on uh, subsequent mental health disorders in deployed personnel. And what we knew from the literature was that if you had a pre-existing mental health disorder, you were more than likely to have an exacerbation of that mental health disorder or an additional mental health disorder in the context of a military deployment. But we're really kind of silent on the pre-existing sleep disorder. So I I did find that a pre-existing sleep disorder did exacerbate mental health illness. And Dr. Gehring took the millennial cohort uh, study and, and kind of found the same thing. So I wasn't surprised to find that. Um, 
gosh, mental health and, and military is a lot to unpack there. Uh, so my my questions were all from my clinical practice, and I and I still find that I'm I have a lot of questions, and I always find I think of myself as a clinician with a research problem, and and not <laughs> vice versa. <laughs> I just never have time or the effort to, or I have the effort. I just never have find the time to get my fingers in into the research. Uh, um, area. Another question I have is we have a lot of women who are now serving in these combat roles and they're being exposed to all these elements that they weren't exposed to before the, the gases and the fumes from the, uh, the explosive devices, guns, ammunition. We know that a lot of them are becoming amenorrheic and they're having Mm. a lot of issues with thyroid problems. And so Who's doing the research with that? I mean, that's one of the questions that I had. I'm actually writing up something for um, hopefully the couple of the nurse practitioner journals. But, um, you know, there's there's a lot there that we don't know. These these exposures to women and the reproductive system, how does that affect uh, them? Um, where do we go? How do we protect them? Multiple brain injuries. I, I mean, CTE, what are the long-term effects of that? You know, there's just so much there that we just don't understand. We're beginning to understand a little bit about it, but I think there's, there's so much there that we can try and figure out. There's a a significant relation between uh, mental illness, trauma, and uh, the exacerbation of PTSD with TBI. So, you know, there's a chronicity of disease when you combine the two. Uh, I, I often see that. So um, I'm, I'm very curious about um, that. I, I, I see the opportunity for some of these new medications and uh, I'm not, I hate to use a, a branded medication, but there's some new medications out there that I think might have some unique uses for trauma patients and they're in clinical trials right now. And I'm actually using them with my patients and I'm seeing some good outcomes. So I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm, I'm super hopeful for my patients with some of the new medications that we have. Yeah. That, that's, uh, I mean, you, uh, that, that, that's a key point. I, I, I don't think we have um, done enough and, you know, I'll be, uh, I'll be honest with you. I don't think the military has done enough to identify and treat mental health uh, within the military. And I think that's mm-hmm. part of our problem when people transition out or they get kicked out, I think it becomes problematic. Uh, because now you have the service member or veteran um, that is, it's, it almost becomes punitive in the military when you're not, when you're not clicking, right? When you're not, uh, st- you know, staying in step with everybody. Um, so I think it, it's, uh, and, and, you know, I think the military is designed that way. It's like, if you're not functioning, they move you along and they bring somebody who is functioning, but, you know, moving people along, actually, there was a, <clears throat> there was a colleague um, uh, up in Northern California um, and she mentioned, uh, you know, it's like the military kind of puts you through the meat grinder and then pushes you out in the civilian world and the civilian world tries to put you back into that, <laughs> what, whatever you look like, military service. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so I think there's definitely an opportunity. I think, but I think the community, uh, I think the answer, I don't know if the military is going to really uh, change how they do business, but I'm hoping, um, I'm hoping we have an opportunity to be uh, a better community for veterans to come back to. 
Um, cause, and again, another friend of mine said, you know, um, veterans don't come back to, uh, federal agencies like the VA and the, all those things. They come back to their communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we just don't do a good enough job as a community to take care of our uh, veteran population. Yeah. I, I do think that there's a lot of trauma patients that end up in the justice system. Yes. Um, yes. and I, and I, I that has a generational negative impact, um, oh. that I think, we really need, uh, as we say in the military, to get left a bang. Um, there's a lot of ways that we can intervene there that I think that we could do better. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, so if you were going to, um, um, you know, uh, I'm sure you've had, you've had mentors along the way that have, uh, you know, you've already mentioned like a few people who have stepped up and, uh, kind of um, helped you with your practice authority <laughs> that you've needed. Uh, 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 but it's good to have have that network uh, of individuals in your uh, in your life. Um, but if for for people that are uh, that are looking to uh, um, let's say transition out of the military, uh, um, and um, what would be your 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 advice uh, when they transition out? So I I always tell people to have. Uh, a diversity in who they may stay in touch with and have mentors with. So, you know, continue to have that, that relationship with people who are still in and then find people who are on the outside so that you can have assistance with that really uncomfortable feeling that you're going to go through during the transition um, and, and have diversity in not just nursing for the nurses who are out there, but, you know, find people in other practices and other professions that, can help you maybe think about things a little bit differently. Uh, look at other opportunities because you you may find a, a great job in a, in a place where you'd never think, of, uh, uh, you know, maybe government or public health or education. Just think diverse and 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 maybe not uh, think just in one lane as far as the, the kind of mentor. Have somebody maybe who is behind you a couple of years and ahead of you in a couple of years and maybe ahead of you, you know, 30 years so that you can think along that trajectory. I have somebody who's in his seventies or eighties. He was, uh, uh, he worked on the Hill for quite some time and he, he's been mentoring me for a while now. And I have always appreciated his assistance. I, I never understand what he's saying to me. And maybe that's why I stick around because I'm still trying to figure out what he says, but you know, I just love him dearly. And I, and I, and I always appreciate the things that he tells me. So um, it's always helpful to have those connections available to you so that if you get frustrated or you have a question, you have somebody to go to. Uh, yeah, that's actually, it's really good advice. I, I don't know, for some reason I'm going to nerd out for a second uh, over <laughs> Over this, uh, there was a, uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a Trekkie. Um, so <laughs> there was a, as you're talking about this, uh, this, this, this uh, episode is coming into my head where there was, uh, uh, Captain Picard, it was next gen, it was Star Trek Next Generation, and it was, uh, Captain Picard who had been injured, uh, at, and he was there in a cave with like Wesley Crusher, right? So they're in that cave, and he, and Wesley Crusher is about to go to the, uh, to the academy, and, um, he said, he says, look up this person. I forgot who the person is. He said, he says, you know, if you have questions, anything you need, go to this person. And then Wesley Crusher says, who is this person? You know, uh, thinking like, it's like some, like the big boss or, you know, the commander or whatever, but it wasn't, it was actually the groundskeeper. 
right? Mm -hmm. The person is the groundskeeper um, and who's been there for like forever, right? So uh, it's it's good to have those people in your life where uh, where uh, they're knowledgeable and not necessarily in your in your lane, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But they have experience, and I think it's important to tap into that experience. Uh, so thank you. Um, anything else uh, you want to share? I want to be respectful of your time. Um, we can talk forever. So, <laughs> um, um, I, I always think that the the best people are who are met, your mentors are the best people to call you on your stuff, right? So you never want somebody who's always going to tell you what you want to hear. Um, find somebody who is smart enough to give you feedback based on what they think is best for you. Maybe not what's best for them, but um, helping you to kind of push you in the right direction, you know, and, and maybe make you a little bit uncomfortable in a way that's going to be best for that person. Um, and, and if you're the mentor, um, be comfortable enough to have that relationship with that person that you can give them that advice in a friendly, soft-spoken, <laughs> nice, friendly sort of way and that they'll take it and, um, you know, encourage them to be the best person that they can be. So I guess that's what, you know, kind of be the final thing that I would say. Well, thank you so much. It's great advice. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, you know, I, I think the best advice, I, I mean, that I've, uh, that I've probably received has been people who've, uh, who've nudged me uh, to change my trajectory <laughs> in, in what I've been doing. And, and there has been times where I've said no and gone my own way anyway, but it's good to have those people uh, in your <laughs> life. Um so thank you so much. I appreciate uh, everything uh, that you've shared with us. And I appreciate having the, had the opportunity to know you, know you for the last several years. And I look uh, forward to your uh, career moving forward. Um, so thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Have thank a great you. night. Thank you. Um, you have been listening to the RN Mentor podcast with my guest, uh, Dr. Pamela Wall. And I look forward to bringing you this episode and a future episodes soon. Thank you very much and have a great rest of your week. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Tayeb. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.aliartayeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.